The scripture reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 16 to 17. If you're following in the Pewback Bibles, that's page 957. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 16 through 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is the word of the Lord. We're kind of getting that a little bit. Let's try it again. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah. I always, I, when I'm in your spot, I often forget to. So uh, we are just embarking on a two-week series here on baptism and communion and kind of tucking it into a series that we did a number of years ago called Together for Good. And hopefully over the course of the next two weeks, you'll see why it is tucked into that series. Uh, well, for years... Snack time was an absolutely critical time in our household. We're, we're kind of moving beyond the absolutely critical snack time phase of our family, although it is still asked for every day. Um, but if you ask any Trinity kid servant, you ask any parent, if you get caught on an errand with a young child at snack time with no snack, it is no bueno at all. You know this to be true. Hanger. Hunger plus anger. Hanger is a clear and present danger for parents who have kids that have just skipped a snack time. Can I get an amen to that this morning? Amen. Their bodies are growing. Their metabolism is going like a mile a minute. Uh, they need something to sustain that. They have to keep their blood sugar regulated. So imagine with me, all right? It is 10.55 a.m., and your kid has just about hit their limit. They've already passed snack time with no snack, emergency zone. It's too early for lunch, but they're just a mess. Now imagine it's 10.55 a.m. on a Sunday, all right? And imagine that there is no childcare provided on this Sunday, and they are sitting right next to you. And now imagine by some miracle of grace that I have already transitioned us from the sermon into the Lord's Supper portion of our gathering, all right? It's 10.55 a.m., no snack. Your kid is sitting next to you, and we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. People are starting to filter into the, the center aisle here to get the bread and the cup, and your child sort of reaches up and tugs on your sleeve as you're praying, and then they whisper, hey, why can't I have a snack like everyone else? How would you answer them? Why can't I have a snack like everyone else? And what I really want to know is, if you were desperate enough when you came up here, would you sneak an extra cracker for your kid? But seriously, what gives you the right to this snack, but maybe not your young child? The Lord's Supper is known by a few different names. A sacrament, communion, the Lord's table, the Eucharist. All these names have different origins and probably slightly different meanings, but for our purposes today, we're going to use them interchangeably. The Lord's Supper joins baptism as one of the two ordinances that Jesus commanded. Ordinance is just a fancy word for things that Jesus ordained. Ordinances ordained. Uh, these are the two ordinances that Jesus has commanded of us, the Lord's Supper and baptism. 
And we should shoot to understand them because they come from the mouth of Jesus and the direction of Jesus. We should shoot to understand them as holistically as we can. We know that this supper is more than a snack. We know that baptism is more than a swim. But how exactly? I want to answer this question and others this morning with regard to how baptism and the Lord's Supper relate to one another. How do these two things relate to each other? You cannot have the one, you should not have the one without the other. They actually belong together. You get both or neither, but not one without the other. We shouldn't be baptized and not take communion, and we shouldn't take communion without having first been baptized. Now, I have hopes for all of you in here that you have been dosed up on coffee this morning. I've been dosed up on the most prayers that I've ever received in a pre-gathering prayer meeting this morning, so I've been dosed up and I hope you're dosed up because we are gonna transition from the auditorium into the classroom and from a podium to a lectern. It's gonna be a little bit more uh, complex than normal, maybe a little bit more academic than our normal. I'm not apologizing for that, it's just a heads up so you're prepared as we go into this. Um, some ideas are a little bit more complex, so I'm going to be putting a little bit more up on screen than we normally do, so that hopefully that, uh, as you hear it, you can also read it, which might aid in our learning today. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are big deals to Jesus. So if you're wondering why we take two weeks to talk about these things, that's why. If it's a big deal to Jesus, it's a big deal to us. So let me, let me start with a question here for us. When does a church become a church. When does a church become a church? Maybe we could ask, what are the birds and the bees of the church, right? Uh, let's join with all kids on a variation of that ancient dreaded question. Where do churches come from, mommy and daddy? Where do babies come from? Now we're asking where do churches come from, okay? Maybe you say, didn't Jesus say something about, you know, where two or three are gathered together in my name, something, something, blah, blah, blah. Is that, is that what a church is? So is a church just a gathering of two or more Christians anywhere. Why or why not? Is it a gathering of Christians in a building like this? Uh, is it a, when a group of Christians heads to Senor Salsa here in a few minutes when I'm done? Will that be a church when they're gathered around the table eating chips and salsa? How about when a whole stadium of Christians gather in an arena uh, for a concert of their favorite Christian artist? Is that a church? Why not? If two or three of us are shopping in Giant sometime this week together at the same time and we bump into each other on the cereal aisle, has Giant's community church suddenly sprung up there in the cereal aisle just because two or three Christians are gathered there in the aisle? What happens when you go to produce and I go to the bakery? Has the church dissolved all of a sudden? What makes a church a church? What flips the switch from being a group of Christians to a church of Christians? It can't just be a group of Christians, right? There has to be some kind of bonding agent that makes us a church. So there are two critical moments in the birth of a church, invisible regeneration and then visible congregation. Invisible regeneration, visible congregation. The invisible part, I think we're all pretty familiar with, at least if we're Christians, we've been in the faith for any period of time. We know that the work of the Spirit saves us as we place our faith in Christ. That's the invisible work of regeneration that happens in our souls, and our hearts. This is when a person becomes a Christian. That's hard to see, but when does a church begin to emerge and becomes visible? The visible congregation piece. What's the difference between a crowd of Christians and a church of Christians? 
Bobby Jameson, who has helped me a lot in seeing some of these things, he says this, a church is born when a group of Christians commit to one another to do all that Jesus commanded his church to do together. Gather for worship, build each other up in love, bear each other's burdens. All right, so, so what gives here? We could do all of these things on the cereal aisle of giant, right? This still does not answer our question of what makes a church a church. How do you cross the threshold from being Christians to being a church? What flips the switch? Well, let me finish that Jameson quote. Blah, 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 build each other up in love, bear each other's burdens, and here at the end, and celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper together. That is the clincher of that phrase, for him at least. The, the way a church distinguishes itself from a group of Christians is through the ordinances of baptism and communion. Jameson goes on to say, the ordinances make it possible to point to something and say church, rather than only pointing to many somethings and saying Christians. So in baptism, we publicly declare our allegiance to King Jesus. It's how we go on record as being a Christian. So for example, in Acts 2, the crowd at Pentecost is under conviction and they yell out, hey, what should we do? What should we do? And then Peter responds, he says, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And then we read that those who received his word and were baptized were that day added to the church about 3,000 souls. There's like our first membership log right there in the New Testament. How did God's invisible work of regeneration become visible to the church on that day? How did it become public? By believers being baptized. How did these Christians become visible to each other? How did they know that they were Christians? By being baptized. Baptism is part one of the birds and the bees of the church. Uh, conversion and then baptism. Uh, the birds, as it were. Let's talk about the bees. Just as there are two parties involved in the creation of a child, there are two ordinances involved in the creation of a church. So listen to how Paul describes the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10. Steph just read it for us. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So Paul is telling us that when we come to this space every week, week after week after week, we are enjoying intimate fellowship with, intimate participation with the body and the blood of Jesus. But... The next verse that she read for us is critical for our discussion today. This vertical fellowship has a horizontal application. Vertical fellowship, horizontal application. Verse 17 goes on to say, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the Lord's Supper takes the many and makes us one by forcing us all to come to the one place and eat the same bread of life, the same loaf, as it were. So baptism is how the one joins the many, if you can follow along on that picture, and the supper is how the many become one. Baptism is how the one joins the many, and the supper is how the many become one. So we see our unity in Christ creating a unity in the church. And we'll see this fleshed out a little bit more next week when we go a little bit deeper. But the primary marker, one of the primary markers of someone who is under church discipline uh, is an exclusion from this table. By their behavior, they've so wrecked the vertical communion and the horizontal communion that they are barred from this table because this table says something very 
uh, powerful and beautiful about our unity with one another and our unity with Jesus. But more on that next week. I know church discipline can be a scary word, some scary terminology. Hopefully, uh, we can explain that a little bit next week. Uh, But this is how churches are born. Baptism and the supper are how you get from Christians to church. This isn't a new idea. Thomas Cranmer, all the way back in 1552, confirms, he says, our Lord Jesus Christ has knit together a company of new people with sacraments, or we could say with the ordinances. Jonathan Lehman is helpful here too. He says, baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two signs given to churches by Christ to mark off those who belong to him. Who are the people of God on earth? Those who are baptized into church membership and then receive the Lord's Supper. They, go, uh, they are public identity markers, and they are meant to go together. They are not just individual acts, but corporate acts. It's not just the individual saying something in baptism in the Lord's Supper. It's the church saying something as well. In other words, you can totally read your Bible on your own. You can totally worship and sing on your own. You can pray on your own. But you cannot baptize yourself, and nor can you partake in the Lord's Supper alone. These are communal acts. Remember, it's the the one joining the many in baptism and the many becoming one in the supper. It's communal. Maybe you're still not convinced about the centrality of these two things. But think about this. If all we needed was the preached word, or the sung word, or the pray word, that's all Jesus would have given to us. But it's not all that he ordained. He ordained visible words, dramatic reenactments of his glorious gospel provision. So like picture baptism, a body going down into a watery grave and then reemerging, a hunk of bread that has a likeness to flesh, a cup of wine that has an appearance like blood, baptism, And the table are what Augustine called almost 2,000 years ago now. He called them visible words, actions that bring into real life action the words on the pages of our Bibles. When the word is read or preached, the gospel is something that we hear. In baptism, the gospel is something that we see, someone going into the grave and coming out alive. But at the table, the gospel is something that we taste, all of our senses being involved here at the gathering of this church. Visible, tasteable words. Tim Chester calls these ordinances God's body language. We pick up signals from people's posture and their facial expressions that often reinforce what they're saying, their words. The sacraments are given to confirm the words that we hear in the gospel. So let's unpack this a little bit further. The imagery of baptism is very closely tied to conversion. Think about going down into the grave and then coming out alive. That's the imagery of baptism. Once dead and now alive. Baptism should happen very close to conversion as a symbolic outward demonstration of invisible regeneration. So let me illustrate this in maybe some more down-to-earth terms. Baptism is like the symbolic door that you open up through which you enter into the household of faith. All right? And remember, we're trying to illustrate uh, the relationship between baptism and the table. Uh, So if baptism is like the door that you open up into the house, let's think about the imagery of communion, this table, uh, which is very closely tied to the idea of community, communion, community. Remember that community that we talked about a few minutes ago has a vertical aspect and then a horizontal aspect. 
uh, community with both the body of Christ and then the people of Christ, the actual physical body of Christ. He says, we participate in his body. We participate in his blood. So continuing with our household analogy here, communion is like the symbolic family dinner table you sit down at to share a meal once you've entered the house through the symbolic door of baptism. So there's a logical order here, if you're following with me. Enter the household of faith, first privately through conversion, and then publicly by baptism. Then gather around the table to eat with the family of faith. That's what this is. This is our family dinner table. Big family, uh, little meal, all right? The point I'm trying to make is that these two things belong together. We are not to separate them. The Bible doesn't know of an unbaptized person coming to the table. And it doesn't know of someone who is baptized and walking faithfully with Jesus not coming to the table. We shouldn't separate these two things. If you're coming to this table, or maybe if you have a child that's coming to this table without having been baptized, you should be baptized. That is the first step of obedience to Jesus. The Lord's Supper is not like training wheels for baptism. Baptism ought to precede the supper as the first act of obedience to Jesus. I know baptism makes some of us nervous. I understand that. But if you are willing to publicly side with Jesus at the table, why would you be unwilling to publicly side with Jesus in the waters of baptism? So let me illustrate this further. When the Eagles play this fall, how will you know which team that you are supposed to cheer for on screen? How will you know? Well, you will look at them and you will find the team with the Eagles jerseys, and that's how you will know which team to root for. That jersey is how each player publicly identifies with their team. But imagine with me, if Jalen Hurts, if you know nothing about sports, no worries, Jalen Hurts is the star quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles. Imagine if Jalen, this fall, goes to Nick Sirianni, who is the Eagles coach. And he's like, look, coach, I want to play. I really want to play. Really, more than anything, I want the $255 million that you just promised me if I do play. Uh, But listen, I don't like our jerseys, all right? I just... I just don't like the green. I don't like the design. I I, I don't know. I I don't like our jerseys, and I'm not going to wear one. No matter how hard Jalen presses on that and his preference for that jersey, they're not going to give up on that requirement, right? If you want to play the game, you have to wear the jersey. Baptism is the jersey of the Christian life. It's how you publicly identify yourself with Jesus' team. So don't skip the step. It's the point that I'm trying to make. My hope is that for those of us who are believers but have not yet followed Jesus in baptism, that we would make the decision today to follow Jesus in baptism. It really is a big deal to Jesus, important. And my hope is that we as parents especially will tune in to see when Jesus might lead us to talk with our kids about these sorts of things. On that note, we are two weeks from today going to be starting a kids and parents baptism class that will last for three weeks. Hopefully, uh, you'll be able to to be a part of that and bring your kids into that. We would love to have you be a part of that. More on that uh, this week in an email, but I just wanted to throw a teaser out there for you. Let's keep going. Uh, I remember well my wedding day still, as probably most of us do. We were in Lilburn, Georgia at Berean Baptist Church. The guys had black suits on, silver ties. The ladies had uh, light blue dresses on for the bridesmaids, and of course, the center of attention, the beautiful lady in white, right? I can still see that door. There's a door in the back pop open, uh, and I can still feel the ethos of that moment as I watched Miriam walk down that aisle with her daddy, my face riveted to her face, anticipating uh, this wonderful uh, 
amazing celebration of that day uh, at our wedding. Uh, but compare that day to a day we spent together a few weeks ago. Miriam and I were on a date, and we were following a prompt to write out our love story for one another privately, uh, each of us on our own, on our own phones. But there was a catch. Uh, we had to text each other our stories, our love stories, but we had to text each other our love stories only by means of emojis. Um, and then the other person had to try to attempt to interpret which part of our romance we were attempting to tell uh, with, those, uh, with those emojis. I thought about putting it up on screen, but I, I thought against that. Um, we laughed really hard. You should try it. Uh, it was really fun. Uh, but this practice did a few things for us. It rebonded us relationally. It re-upped a sense of covenant safety. Man, after all that we've been through, we're still together by some miracle and by God's grace. It renewed our vows to one another. The sweetness of that moment made me want to continue carrying out the promises that we made to one another all the more at our wedding for richer, poor, sickness, and health. Of course I'll do all those things. I love this lady. And this, that, that practice reminded me of that. It reminded me of past joys, of first dates, of second dates, of good times, and so on. Baptism is like the wedding day union with Christ where everyone gets to see and celebrate who you belong to, the bride or the groom. The Lord's Supper, though, on the other hand, is like the ongoing renewal of love and vows that could be celebrated, like, for instance, at a weekly, on a weekly date night. So in this analogy, you have to make vows at your wedding before you can renew those vows over a meal. Same with baptism and communion, it should be. Baptism is like the initiating vow. The Lord's Supper is like the renewing vow, date night. You do not get one without the other. If you're baptized, you come to the table. If you're coming to the table, it's assumed that you're already baptized. The Lord's Supper carries similar weight and provides a similar function as our date the other night. So the Lord's ta uh, table rebonds us with Jesus. We participate in his body and blood. It's a moving experience when you understand the intimacy of the moment. When you take that bread and you take that cup, it is beautiful and amazing. It also re-ups our sense of covenant safety with God because of Jesus. We are safe. After all I've done, God is still here for me because of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, is part of what's supposed to happen in that moment around the table. It also renews our vows to Jesus and he to us. It reminds us of the past work of Jesus, which fuels joy and strength to keep going. Here's how Thabiti Anyabwile describes this. He says, the Lord's Supper is far more than a mere necessity, though it is necessary, far more than a mere memorial, though it reminds us of precious things from redemptive history, and far more than mere ritual, though practiced by Christian churches of nearly every variety since the days of Jesus himself. The Lord's Supper provides an ongoing means of grace and fellowship between the Lord Jesus and his bride, the church. So that's sort of how these two... Uh, ordinances work together as the baptismal door and as the communal table, as the baptismal wedding and then the weekly meal to maintain and deepen love. Baptism is how the one joins the many and the supper is how the many become one. I have a vivid memory of stepping into the baptismal pool as a young child in the church that I grew up in. The city was Tampa, Florida. The church was Temple Heights Baptist Church. The baptismal pool was way up high, like way up high. It was in front of many hundreds of people. I remember feeling very nervous about that. I remember uh, dipping my toe into the water, relieved uh, that it was warm. 
I remember my dad standing with me, next to me. And I remember seeing a metal folding chair floating in the bottom of the pool. And I was confused. Uh, As I waded into the pool, though, it became clear what the purpose of this floating metal chair was. I was too short to be seen over the edge of the pool, so they threw a chair in the pool so that I could stand on that while the pastor baptized me. Otherwise, the only thing that the church would have been able to see was my hair, uh, which ironically is the one thing I wish my current church could see. But, <laughs> but do you know what? While I can remember my baptism vi- uh, very vividly, distinctly, I cannot remember the first time I partook of the Lord's Supper. Why can't I remember that? I'm not sure, but I wonder if maybe we've undervalued the Lord's Supper in our Christian circles. Maybe we've been lazy in determining what its value truly is, what the meaning is behind it, what the utility is of it from Jesus' perspective. Maybe we've thought of it as just merely a means to remember what Jesus has done for us rather than to cultivate intimate fellowship with and participation with the body and the blood of Jesus. I don't know. But to test out this theory that we've tended to undervalue the Lord's Supper, imagine two scenarios. First, no announcement is made, but starting next Sunday, we, start, we stop celebrating communion for the next six months. Compare that with, no announcement is made, but starting next Sunday, we stop all singing and musical worship for the next six months. Everything else is staying the same, preaching, communion, blah, blah, blah. Which one of those do you think would cause the bigger uproar? I think we all know which one would catch the eye and the ear and the ire of most of us, at least most quickly. Why, though? Is singing more important than the table? I wonder if it's because we haven't given this table its fair share of prominence in both personal study and then in public teaching. This place right here is rarefied air. It's an unspeakable privilege what we get to do each week around this table. It is grand, it is glorious, and it is gospel rich. This quote crystallizes it, I think. You don't get a different Christ in the supper from the Christ you get in the word, but you may get the same Christ better. I think we may have a certain feeling of closeness, nearness to Jesus when we sing, but I think the reality is that we are no nearer to Jesus than when we are participating in this sacred meal. 1 Corinthians 10, again, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Okay, well, all well and good. Why are we dealing with this right now? Well, by far, the fastest growing area of our ministry here at Trinity is the nursery and Trinity kids, all right? Babies keep coming and it keeps growing. Youth group is getting a little bit bigger each year too. It's awesome. It's a sweet, fun time to be a part of this church. And we are quickly coming to a time when many parents will be faced with a couple of questions. When should my kid be baptized? When should my kid participate in the Lord's Supper? And it's not just kids. I know that there are adults who are wrestling with the same thing. Some of you have never been baptized in any tradition. And I would submit to you that from the scriptures, it's time to change that, Jesus would say. And and one quick caveat here, I'm not going to be addressing 
mode or timing of baptism today. I'm not going to try to persuade you to a particular mode. Uh, should we baptize babies or believers? That's not the point. Uh, uh, if you're reading between the lines, you might suspect. Uh, you probably know because you're at a, like a Baptistic church. But in, in any case, I'm not speaking to that at all today. Uh, that'll be another sermon for another time. Uh, I would say, though, that we, we, we are the type of church where, like, think of the most famous Presbyterian that you know. I don't know, Tim Keller, and maybe the most famous Baptist that you know, uh, John Piper. Those two brothers would be able to come to this table in our church, both of them, okay? Uh, Anyway, that's beside the point. Uh, I want to spend the rest of our few moments together here looking at the supper and its significance to us. My prayer is that you will begin to experience the Lord's Supper in new and profound and rich ways. This is not just a cold, rote, religious tradition. It is incredibly special and beautiful and rich. Someone has said that the Lord's Supper is a meal that has never gone down easy. Uh, from the beginning, Jesus' own words about eating his body and drinking his blood were widely misunderstood. This is from John 6. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And so look how the people that were standing there respond, maybe like you and me. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. <laughs> who can listen to it? Not only were they confused, who can blame them, but this proved to be, this truth proved to be a turning point, uh, a turning away point for many people. He goes on to say, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Language like, this is my body, and this cup is the new covenant in my blood, aren't simple things to understand, let alone apply in the practical life of the church. So for example, at the Reformation, the nature and meaning of the Lord's Supper became a major flashpoint between the Protestants, um, or between the, uh, the Catholics and the Protestants. Believe it or not, some of the reformers went to their graves, to their deaths, for their view on this table. In Germany, in France, in Scotland, People went to their deaths because of holding to the truth around this table. What is a rote sort of requirement for us, maybe a rut that you feel like you get in? Um, what is a rote requirement for us? Each week was a precious treasure to give one's life for 500 years ago. We should not take this table lightly. So then we would do well to tread carefully here, to slow our roll, to get a better understanding of what's going on when we come to this table. J.I. Packer said, live slowly enough to be able to think deeply about God. What a good word, particularly for me, who does not like to slow down much. Let us slow down enough to think deeply about this beautiful table. What is the Lord's Supper? I'm going to try to answer this question by asking you two questions, all right? Uh, and then we'll add to this list of questions next week. But what is the origin of the Supper? And then why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Let's look at these one at a time. What is the origin of the Lord's Supper? Well, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, just before he was willingly led like a lamb to the slaughter, he was celebrating the Passover dinner with his disciples. This annual Jewish tradition was mostly backward-facing for them. They were looking back to a time in their history when God rescued them. This rescue came when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And so God sent 10 plagues to release 
to secure the release of his people. And the tenth and final plague was brutal, and it was violent. Every firstborn son's life in all the land was on the line. Uh, They were going to be killed that night. It was brutal. Every firstborn would die unless you had smeared the blood of a lamb on your doorposts. Then the angel of the Lord, when he saw that blood, would pass over that house and go to the next one. If there's blood on that one, he would pass over that house. If there's no blood on that next one, the firstborn would be killed. Why did God spare his people? Not because they deserved it and the Egyptians didn't deserve it. No, the reason that God passed over his people with the blood on those uh, door frames was because they were covered in the blood of a sacrifice. And thus, a tradition was born, the Passover tradition. Every year, the Israelites would celebrate the day when God freed them from their slavery and spared them from death by means of death, the death of the lamb. Bobby Jameson said, this meal marked the birth of their nation. Who is Israel? The people rescued by God from Egypt. And the Passover reminded them year by year that they were a people, the only people whom God freed from slavery and made his own. So it was at this celebration, thousands of years later, that Jesus took the bread. They're looking back at Passover, and they're taking the bread, and he took the cup, and he's repurposing this commemorative meal for the new covenant people of God. You've got the old covenant, they're celebrating the Passover. Now you got the new covenant, a new covenant Passover where all of God's people, by means of Jesus' blood, would get passed over for eternal death. At the Last Supper, Jesus was remaking the Passover in order to tell his disciples how to understand the death that he's about to die. So while first century Jews looked back to That first Passover, our weekly meal here at Trinity, looks back to Jesus' Last Supper and the events that followed in the next few hours. And we do it every week to commemorate and proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. But why do we continue this tradition to this day? So that was the origin of the Lord's Supper. And then finally today, why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? I cannot exhaustively exhaustively cover all of the reasons this morning, but I'm going to touch on a few. First, why do we do this? Because uh, Jesus said to, all right? That's the first one. Jesus said, do this. And so we do this. So to demonstrate humble submission. This isn't something that the church invented. It's something Jesus instituted in Luke 22 and other areas. But humble submission is not the only reason we come to this table. If you've ever wondered what you're supposed to do, like when you're coming down the aisle, when you're back in your seat, what, what, what are you supposed to do with yourself? Where's your mind supposed to go? Uh, Why celebrate this meal? Here's a few ideas. First, to seek visual commemoration. To seek visual commemoration. Like our emoji date uh, forced us to deeply ponder our early days as a couple, this table forces us to deeply ponder Jesus' last days on this earth and their eternal, beautiful consequences. Why bread? Because of his body. Why wine? Because of his blood. These are violent symbols to help us commemorate the exorbitant price that Jesus paid. This is why Augustine called them again visible words. These elements here are evocative. They're provocative. They're bloody and violent and glorious. They are tools to help us visually commemorate our Christ. One theologian says, one of Christ's aim at the table, among others, is to keep his person and work central in the life and worship of his church. 
In a world of complexity and tangents, we are prone to forget what matters most. We are disposed to drift, to shift, to waver, to allow our spiritual feet to move to the margins and not stay planted in the center. We all have the need to rehearse the fundamentals. The supper is no less than a stubborn, vital memorial. In the context of Paul's mentioning, as often as you drink it implies frequency is preferable to infrequency. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would the apostle have us proclaim the Lord's death less often or more? So some of you through the years have asked why we celebrate this ordinance weekly. Well, this right here is one of the reasons that we do that. There are others, and we've tried to capture them here in this little pamphlet. Uh, you can find one of these on that back uh, connect table if you want to pick that up. A few more reasons why we do, that, uh, do this on a weekly basis. Uh, feel free to grab one of those on your way out. But Jesus says to do this in remembrance of me. At the Lord's Supper, we seek visual commemoration. Also, to pursue two-way unification. Remember, the Lord's Supper is not just this private meal among friends, but the church's public celebration of fellowship with Christ, vertical, and with each other, horizontal. Remember, baptism binds one to many. The Lord's Supper binds many to one. The unification is both uh, vertical and horizontal. The Lord's Supper isn't meant to be like this super deep and personal time of private devotions for you here in this gathering, sitting next to a couple hundred other people. Uh, it is a tangible expression to our union with Jesus and therefore our unity together in Christ. Why are we one body? Because we share the one loaf, the one bread of life, Jesus. Finally, to or almost finally, to engage in self-examination. The Lord's Supper is totally an appropriate time for us to examine ourselves and confess our sins to God. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians 11, 27, Paul warns that to participate in the supper in an, he calls it, an unworthy way is to be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Then he says in verse 28, he says, let a person examine himself, then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, Paul does not explicitly say here uh, what eating and drinking in an unworthy manner means, and perhaps we'll have time to unpack that a little bit next week, but at the very least, surely at the very least, it involves unrepentant, habitual sin that we refuse to turn from. This is partly why each week we encourage you to take a few minutes each Sunday before you come up here. We want to help you obey this. Examine yourself before you come to the table. The consequences of shrugging off self-examination are pretty staggering, and we will touch on those next week from 1 Corinthians 11. At the same time, if this table becomes an occasion for you, for like unhealthy introspection, and all you can do is see your sin and your faults, and you're just like guilt compounding before you come to this table, then you're doing it wrong too. That's the other side of it. You've missed the point, if that's you. The Lord's Supper proclaims that all guilt is gone and all debt is paid, all right? So yes, do look inward and confess what the Spirit shows to you as a shortcoming. Repent of that, turn from that, and then look to the cross and come eat and drink. Often on Sundays, I do something, I never kind of call it this, but I do something that's called historically fencing the table. The idea is that through words, I build a fence around the table so that only those whom Jesus says should come and eat, come and eat. 
And so there are a few categories that I typically mention. First, I, I tell non-Christians in the building uh, that this table is not for you. Uh, they are not participating in the body and blood of Jesus through faith, and that's fine. There's, there's no shame in just staying put. And there's a second category of people. If you call yourself a Christian, but you're, like, you're unrepentantly sinning in some way, you don't, you don't really care that you are shrugging off the commands of Jesus, this table isn't for you either. And that's because of first, this 1 Corinthians 11 text. It says, let a person examine himself. And then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Whoa. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. We'll get into that more next week. Uh, this is why I take the time, though, every week to intentionally say these sorts of things. If you ever wondered where that comes from, it comes from this. Listen to the, how the Heidelberg Catechism, almost 500 years old, helps put a fence around the table. Who is to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are displeased with themselves for their sins, yet trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining infirmity is covered by the passion and death of Christ, who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to amend their life. But the impenitent and the hypocrites eat and drink judgment to themselves. Let's not get this twisted, though, this morning, okay? No one comes to this table in a worthy manner in and of themselves. Jesus is the only one who gets to hop the fence, okay? When I build the fence, Jesus alone hops the fence, and we need to ride his coattails if we ever have any hopes of getting to this table. And this is why I love this lyric in our new song so much. We sang this a few minutes ago. We'll sing it again at the end. We sing, every vow we've broken and betrayed, and then it like, makes this weird transition. You are the faithful one. Every vow and broken we've betrayed, you're the faithful one. What's the point? In our unfaithfulness and in our unworthiness, Jesus steps in to offer his faithfulness and his worthiness in our place. And we rely on that to give us access to this table. He is the faithful one. And then finally, actually finally today, we come to this table to make a forward-looking proclamation, a forward-looking proclamation proclamation. Trinity, I want you to know that Jesus is totally saving the best for last, okay? Jesus hints at an incredible feast that is still in our future. After telling his disciples to drink the cup of the new covenant in his blood, he adds, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus hasn't had a drop of wine in 2,000 plus years. He's been teetotaling it for a long time but the streak will end. It will end with us around the table with him. This means that the Lord's Supper doesn't just look back to the cross, it looks forward to a feast, to a time when Jesus will feast with us on the Mount of Zion. At this table, we are not just remembering the past, we are tasting the future. So you probably know that scripture calls the church Jesus' bride, that's in Ephesians 5. But in this analogy, in this age, we're, not, uh, we're just engaged, not fully married to Jesus yet, but the wedding is coming, and so the wedding feast. Revelation 19, get your mind around this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, that's us by faith, has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This right here is when Jesus will finally drink from the fruit of the vine again with us. This is when our faith becomes sight. This is when those of us who have hungered and thirsted after righteousness will finally find our souls full, never to be hungry and thirsty again. 700 years before Jesus ever walked the earth, he sent out a teaser trailer for what is coming in our future. And this is what is coming for all of us who are in Christ by faith. We will feast in the house of Zion. Isaiah 25, we'll close with this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, of well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all the faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, Mount Zion. When Jesus inaugurated this ordinance, he reminded them that a better day was coming a day when we would feast with him in the house of Zion. When death will be dead, and so will sin. When Satan will be bound, and we will be free. This table is meant to catapult your perspective into that glorious future. The table is not just a remembrance of the bitterness of Jesus' death. It is a foretaste of glory. What an amazing gift this table is. It should leave us with bated breath, every week when we come to it, like a mouth-watering appetizer before a well-marbled, aged steak. Don't undervalue the table. Trevor is going to come up and pray these truths into our bones this morning, and then we'll eat and drink together. Lord, we're just in awe of what you've done for us. We thank you. Um, for what you've done on the cross. We thank you for the future that you have for us. We thank you for the church. We thank you for this church, for putting us in it and for putting us in the church. We thank you that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people chosen for your own possession so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We thank you that once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have. We thank you for that. We thank you for the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper that you instituted for us. We thank you for the things that they symbolize and remind us of. We pray that you would help us not to take them for granted, not to take them routine, but as we have the opportunity every week to be reminded of what you've done for us. Just help us to really have a renewed appreciation for them and what you have in store for us. In Jesus' name, amen.